Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. Omaida Velasquez, a vascular surgeon who chairs the Department of Surgery and is the Surgeon-in-Chief at the University of Miami Health System. During Clinical Congress 2022, Dr. Velasquez delivered the Olga M. Jonasson Lecture, which honors Dr. Jonasson's trailblazing leadership and significant contributions to surgical practice and surgery education. The lecture highlights Dr. Velasquez's belief that academic surgery is entering a second renaissance where enlightenment and progress on diversification will be exponential and lead to greatly improved patient care. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Thank you so much, Dr. Stein, for the wonderful uh, introduction. I gotta say this is um, today the greatest honor of my life and I am so humbled to be standing here at the podium addressing this um, wonderful audience um, interested in this important topic. Uh, And I wanna thank the um, Women in Surgery Committee of the Um, ACS for making this um, possible, and the ACS leadership for focusing um, uh, on uh, issues of DEI and and welcoming this topic when I gave it um, as a a topic for the Olga Jonasson address. So thank you so much for for being here, and thank you for the opportunity. So um, I'd like to start um, by telling you today is I'm not going to bombard you with too much data, hopefully. Uh, I want to start a dialogue, and I hope that I can impart some um, crystallization to the concepts of DEI that you will take with you and begin to amplify it in your respective institutions. Um, so these are my disclosures, uh, nothing uh, um, to disclose in regards to, to this particular talk. Um, um, I'd like to honor those uh, colleagues um, that came before me, and uh, I tell you, it's an extremely humbling uh, list um, when I look at um, the accomplishments of the great women that have um, given this address uh, in prior years, uh, and we all um, have them as role models, as mentors, as sponsors um, for all of our careers. Um, so thank you, um, all, all, all of you, prior uh, Jonathan lecture um, speakers. Um, So how do we start this conversation? What is the purpose of DEI, right? So um, generally speaking, um, it is about um, getting to a more diverse workplace where you can have various communities, various talented people from all walks of life make contributions. Um, but I'd like to suggest to you that it's also about increasing the enlightenment of our society as to what is good for us, what is good about our, uh, for our field, and why is it that we need to change the world with this DEI Second Renaissance for the benefit of our children so that they can grow up in a world where their talents, diverse as they might be, can be nurtured and used for the benefit of society. Um, so in the end, what we want to do is to, to foster an environment of inclusivity and of safety for all of these diverse ideas so that we can solve the complex modern day 
problems that exist um, and attain a higher level um, of excellence. And uh, if you were here for the prior uh, um, talk that we had, um, I started by a quote from my dean that says there can be no excellence without diversity uh, from Dean Ford, uh, the dean at Miller School. Um, let us start by an opening reflection, and I'm going to pre-warn you because this is a dialogue. I need to frame our perspective, and so I'm going to start with a reflection and end with a reflection, followed by uh, Olga's uh, words at the end. So you came naked, you will leave naked. You came without anything, you will leave without anything. You arrive weak, you will leave weak. So why so much hatred, resentment? envy, self, selfishness, and pride. We will all go empty-handed. What all material things we have earned, we earned here, and we will leave everything here only. The only thing that will go with you, that you actually earned here, is the love you shared, the compassion you showed, the humbleness, your gratitude, your helpfulness, your kindness. This is the legacy you will leave here that everyone will follow. And when I think of Olga, I think of that legacy. So I am humbled that I'm here giving the Olga Jonathan address because I heard her speak uh, uh, when I was a youngster growing up in surgery and that's what I took away from her, her desire to be helpful to others, men and women. But of course, we all know that she was a champion for women in surgery. So today, you're gonna to hear about a little bit of this, a little bit of that, some data, but um, in the end, I want you to remember that perhaps the most important aspect of diversity is diversity of thought, okay? So there's diver DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm going to try to shed a little bit of light because these letters are interchanged often. They're different. They mean different things. They need to come together properly. So I'll give you a little bit of, of that. Um, and then I hope to uh, leave you with um, an even greater understanding, if that's possible, um, that Olga Jonasson was in fact the person that started the revolution of women in surgery. So um, I like to say that conflation and false narratives are the mortal enemies of the DEI renaissance. Okay? So um, uh, I like this little clip, and I, I chose it because if you look at my glasses, they're complex or square glasses or rectangular glasses or whatever it is uh, that it's called. But I came across this clip. Let me see if uh, I can get the volume here. 13, Asheville elected a new mayor, a lawyer called Esther Manheim. She had the now mandatory complicated eyeglasses that all the girl bosses now wear. Okay, so she had the now complicated glasses that all girl, bo girl bosses wear, is what he said. Well, complicated glasses, girl bosses. Um, you know, show me the data. Because <laughs> I think my husband uh, wears square glasses, my son wears square glasses. I think it's just a lot of people wear square glasses. But I guess my point is that um, it, it is important for the D to the T, the diversity to the power of thought, to uh, have many in good faith opinions from diverse backgrounds, from diverse experiences, stakeholders, constituencies. But 
not to have conflation and false narratives. So sometimes it's, it's hard to tease at those two parts. But if you're having good faith opinions that are varied from all kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds and constituents, then that is the recipe for success in solving complex um, problems. And hopefully, at the end of this talk, you will have a better sense of this and continue the conversations at your home uh, institutions. A little bit of a disclaimer, uh, I'm an independent thinker. Uh, you know, um, my uh, ideas that I'll share with you today are my experience, my opinion. They're not based on any institutional endorsement or affiliation. I am not a DEI practitioner or consultant. In fact, I'm not a DEI expert at all. Uh, I just have my opinions about it, and I value the movement of DEI. And most importantly, I'm going to talk about women in surgery, um, and I, we will not have time to go into the LGBTQ plus community, um, but uh, it, it is um, something that I deeply respect and regard. And um, uh, I, when I talk about women in surgery, I do not intend or imply any uh, disregard for the non-binary nature of gender, okay? So, why did I talk about a second renaissance in my title? What is really the DEI movement? I really believe it's an awakening. Uh, it's not, lo no longer should be maintained as a list, everlasting, uh, extending list of firsts. It's no longer about the percentage of this or the percentage of that or quarters. It is about elevating our society and the surgery field um, to something higher, to a higher level of thinking to a higher level of care that we can provide, such as to um, foster the top excellence and the top achievements. Um, and uh, much as in the first Renaissance, uh, when uh, uh, people had to uh, run around uh, trying to hide the fact that they believed that human anatomy uh, should be uh, um, understood and had to actually uh, rob graves in order to understand human anatomy. Um, it is like that now, right? A lot of people do not understand the DEI uh, movement uh, completely, and we have to shed light of what those magical letters, DEI, uh, mean. Uh, and when we do, we will go from an early inception to um, a real flourishing of what we can do as a society and as a field of surgery, embracing DEI. So in, in preparation for this lecture, I was looking at some of the addresses, and I came across the address by um, Dr. Joan uh, Reed, um, who um, in 2018 uh, talked about uh, diversity in, in her address. And she talks about the barriers, and she talked about uh, issues um, that are preventing us from achieving equity in access and outcomes and lack of representation in key stakeholders. And she listed these uh, barriers that you see there in, in black font, um, which are unfortunately still active and very much at stake today, right? Um, and I would su suggest to you that what I added in uh, kind of uh, orange there um, also applies. So it's not just uh, so the subtle uh, things. We also have issues of conflation, false narrative, frank discrimination, frank retaliation, frank microaggressions happening um, that are putting us back um, and holding the movement of DEI from progressing. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit, I'll show you a little bit of data to, to support that. Um, 
And uh, I would uh, um, suggest that um, academic institutions need to adhere to the zero tolerance concept for discriminatory or racist practices and tactics. They all have it, we all have it. We have the policies, but do we adhere to them? Do we look the other way when stuff happens? I am so proud of being a surgeon, perhaps more proud today than I ever was when I joined the field because we have been leaders in the DEI movements and we have every major institution in surgery moving this field forward. Um, of course, the American College uh, of Surgeons with the Regental and Anti-Racism Committee is, is leading uh, the way. Um, the American Surgical Association with their diversity and inclusion task uh, force uh, members um, and the Southern Surgical Association with uh, uh, DEI uh, task force, and I am um, so fortunate to work um, f with uh, surgeons from all over the country, from all ethnicities, all genders, all backgrounds of life, all holding hands to make this movement um, take traction, not only in surgery as the leader, but also in all of academic medicine and in all of our practice of uh, medical care in the United States. So let's spend a moment talking about the lexicon. Okay, so what do we need to understand about this issue of DEI, in, uh, diversity, uh, equity, uh, and inclusion? Um, so there is a sweet spot of the confluency of DEI, which is called belonging. Um, and it, it is where uh, one feels that they, there can be a full engagement in what we're doing in our field, in our institution. And that is that center. Um, I don't know if you can see my cursor there, uh, area where the three letters um, coalesce. But there is a problem if we always use those letters interchangeably. There is a problem and we're not going to get to the result that we want. So for, for example, uh, outside of the equity bubble, you see there that the dominant group or ideology um, is deferred to for decision-making, for opportunities, for promotions. Um, so you can have inclusion and diversity, but if you don't have equity, there's a problem. There's an imbalance there. Um, and uh, the inevitable result of that is power struggles, okay? Um, and uh, um, another example, um, outside of diversity, if you exclude diversity, what happens? You have stagnation, you have average thinking, mediocre thinking, you have an oversaturation of similarity, homogeneity in culture, simplified points of view. That's where no progress gets made and the problems tally up an, an amount and nothing changes ever. Okay, so that's what happens when you don't have diversity. But it's possible that inside that homogeneous group you can have inclusion and you can have, uh, you know, equity. Um, and what happens, um, if you um, have uh, no um, inclusion, right? What happens outside inclusion? Well, that is the worst of it all. The worst of it all because that's when you have turnover. That's where the cultural assimilation results in a disengagement and low morale, okay? Now, in a nutshell, diversity is about identities. Having all walks of life come into the workforce. Equity is about power. Who makes the decisions about money, about promotion? 
uh, about opportunities. Inclusion is about ideas, okay? Um, and uh, you have to have a, the right balance of all three of them, and in that sweet overlap in the center is where you have that sense of belonging. Now, who here can say that we don't have a problem in turnover and workforce uh, in our uh, field? Um, who here can say that um, uh, it, everybody from all walks of life gets to decide who gets the promotion, who gets the raise? Who here can say that we don't have an oversaturation in some parts of our, uh, of our field that are same old, same old, same thinking? So these topics are important and timely today, and this is what we're getting at with the, the DEI second renaissance. And it is critically important to differentiate between the D, the E, and the I, and to learn how to use them inter, uh, as if they were identical and interchangeable. So where we are two years after the, after the murder of uh, George Floyd? Uh, well, uh, this current survey from 2022 indicates that about a half of our institutions are actually um, making strides in having a more diverse workforce and in incorporating a, a, a corporate culture of inclusiveness. However, however, uh, only less than 50%, only 40% are actually um, teaching or have uh, teach learning programs about um, DEI expanded to all of their employee uh, workforce. And less than a quarter um, report that they feel that their workforce and their leaders are so-called expert or advanced in the issues of DEI. So we have ways to go, and this is why we are only in the inception of this renaissance. And I'd like to leave behind perhaps the challenging DEI nomenclature, or not leave it behind, but supplement it, I should say, and ask you to think about this as this concept of D to the T, diversity to the power of thought, D to the T. So diversity, I told you, is about identities. Equity, I told you, is about power. Inclusion, I told you, is about ideas. It is about the concept that you are at the table, but your ideas are value. So it's okay, you can have a boardroom that has one woman, one underrepresented minority, one black, one of everything. But if the other 80% are the majority, and those voices are not being heard, you can have the diversity, but you don't have the I, you don't have the inclusion. Their say gets marginalized. Their ideas don't go anywhere. So we have to rethink the concept about you know, diversity, right? It's not about having one of these and one of that and the first of this and the first of that. It is about D to the T, diversity of thought that comes from representation from all walks of life. The representation brings ideas that are listened to and complemented and don't get marginalized. And they have equity, the representation has equity. They have the power to uh, say, um, you know, opportunities, pay. How many of us don't understand why there's still such a huge pay gap? Um, between women and men. And um, we wrap our, our brains around it and talk about it all the time, but it exists and it doesn't seem to go away. Well, perhaps it's because we're not thinking of D to the T. We have to think of each of those letters. 
So it's no longer about um, this concept that we're going to have a lot of people that look different, but they're all going to think equally. It is about people that are different, that come from all different walks of life, that bring different talents and ideas that are going to be respected, and that have the power to change the world. That is the D to the T. Of course, there's many diversity uh, types. It is, I just told you diversity is about identity. And identities keep, um, you know, adding. I mean, it's just it, our world keeps changing, and you can see the list there. I'm not going to go through it. I'd like to point out that we have left out an identity that very much needs for the health system to look at: the sheltering status identity. Okay, and of course, the D to the T concept could not exist outside of the recognition that perhaps the most important types of diversity is, is, is cognitive diversity, the collective diverse ideas from people from all over the world, all, all cultures, all ethnicities, all religions, all genders, and so on. Uh, and the cultural diversity, because social culture makes a difference. So I want to revisit these concepts because I want you to take um, this dialogue into your institutions. So again, when we talk about diversity, we talk about all these identities. When we talk about um, equity, that is very much um, an outcome. An outcome that has to be looked at from base to initiative to follow-up. So that requires that we look at the baseline imbalances, the baseline loopholes, the unequal starting places. And then we say, okay, what is unequitable about our environment? Is it the pay gap between men and women? Is it the fact that less women are being promoted? Is it, um, is it the loopholes in the um, APT um, uh, concept that are under um, representing some of the groups? What is it and how do we address it, okay? Inclusion, inclusion is about being valued, being relied upon, being empowered ultimately matter. Inclusion is about listening to those that are at the table, even if they are part of the underrepresented group. And it turns out that it, this impacts on the experience and the outcomes of our patients. And this is important for the vitality and the retention of our workforce. Now, who here cannot identify the workforce as the greatest post-pandemic crisis that we have? People are leaving healthcare by the hundreds, the thousands. We have to ask, why are they doing that? Why is healthcare no longer a field that our young ones, our brightest ones, want to go after and chase? Well, we have to think about inclusion. Are the ideas of all of these groups being listened to properly? Are they being included, truly included, not just counting the diversity of that group? So it turns out, that very strong science, and you see some of the references here, uh, support this idea that if you create a diverse, equitable, inclusive environment, that you're going to be building a stronger team, that you're going to be enhancing success, and you're going to be preparing our learners and our staff and our faculty to deliver a, the most uh, excellent type of care in a very rapidly growing, diverse uh, world. And so, in a sense, our differences are a strength. Our differences are our superpower. And 
if we come to understand that diversity isn't just the right thing, but it is the best thing for society, is the best thing for the surgical field, is the best thing for clinical care, for innovation and for education, then perhaps a year, two years from now, not only will we have the preaching to the converted, all of you here, but we'll have standing room only, and everybody in the ACS will be here. Uh, and that's why we're in the beginning of the second renaissance. We are just at a starting point. Um, and the starting has been slow. Uh, and it started back with Olga Jonasson, and then it was re-energized with the murder of George Floyd. And here we are. Um, so why is this so important? I just want to give you a glimpse of our U.S. demographics. And again, I told you there's many kinds of diversity, so this is not all inclusive. But take a look at this. This is uh, our demographics in the United States. For each 100 individuals, most of us are around 60, 50-50 men and women. Most of us are either immigrants or children of immigrants. All kinds of languages are being spoken all over our communities and our homes. Religion is a strong pool. Religion drives our thoughts, our process, our decisions. We're very diverse in religion. It is two different worlds, rural versus urban. Do we understand how healthcare is different? I had to put the cats and dogs, sorry. We're a cat family, but we have a lot of friends that are dogs family. I want you to pay attention to what's coming up. Education. Because that's our pipeline. And disparities in income. Because that is the root cause of many of the disparities that we see in healthcare. Political distributions. Most of us are still independent, but there's quite a bit of a division, as you know. So let's go back to Olga, okay? Olga was a second-generation immigrant. I'm a first-generation immigrant. Um, Olga was um, inspired by her parents who cared for the sick, either um, as a nurse or, or a pastor. I was inspired by my parents. Uh, 
um, in different ways. Uh, um, my dad worked for the Red Cross, and my mom was a, a, a seamstress, did beautiful work with her hands. Um, Olga started the revolution. She didn't know it at the time, but in 1966, by the way, that's when I was born. She um, was admitted um, to the American Board of Surgery, and she made a whopping 0.26% female representation at the time. Uh, we um, have uh, hard, uh, come, come a long way since then, but, but not perhaps far enough. Um, and um, I would like to uh, submit to you that um, if it wasn't for Olga, many women that are here in this audience today might have not uh, been uh, jumping into the uh, choppy waters of the surgical uh, field. So uh, I would love to honor her, uh, and so I'm going to play a couple of clips um, by Olga. In 1987, Dr. Olga Jonasson, after nine years as Chief of Surgery at Cook County Hospital in Chicago, was appointed Chair of the Department of Surgery at the Ohio State University the first and only woman to hold such an academic appointment in the U.S. And then I had the opportunity to look at the position of the chairman of the Department of Surgery at Ohio State. Ohio State has a famous Department of Surgery, largely because of its longtime chairman, Dr. Robert Zollinger, real leading figure in the field. And uh, the thought to come to his department as chairman was uh, almost irresistible. Notice that she calls herself as chairman. And at that time, the idea of a chairwoman or a chair was not even, you know, a concept. And I'm going to uh, show you another clip where the uh, TV uh, reporter that announces her also announces her as a, as a chairman. So this is me. Like I said, I, um, I look up to Olga. I had the privilege of listening to Olga's lectures. I remember her teachings. Um, and. Uh, this is my humble beginnings, you know, in, uh, born in, in a little rural town in Cuba. You see the outhouse uh, there in the background, no running water, no television, no um, uh, plumbing. Uh, and, um, and uh, of course, uh, like many of us, what our parents taught us, our values, uh, drove um, what we went on to, uh, to do. Um, and I, I was inspired by their work ethic. Uh, and their desire to help society wherever they were in whichever situation. Um, and you all heard about Olga's many uh, firsts, um, but it wasn't until um, 2015 when Sandra Wan and I became the first Asian and the first uh, Hispanic uh, chair in surgery, and it wasn't until 2021 that Dr. King became the first uh, black uh, uh, woman uh, chair in surgery. So at this rate, it might take another 200 years before we achieve uh, parity, unless we really understand the critical concept of the DEI and the confluency, where the D, the E, and the I meet in that sense of belonging, uh, and then in that sense of societal progress and field progress, um, and uh, we embrace the D to the T concept. So I, I want to show you this clip because uh, this is uh, another um, uh, example of back then. The concept of a chairwoman did not exist. So um, listen to this. Dr. Jonasson was the first woman on the American Board of Surgery and the first woman elected to the American Surgical Association. She and the late Dr. George Sheldon spearheaded rescuing funding for five years of general surgery residency training as we know it. 
In 1985, she was elected to chair Reagan's task force on organ transplantation. Here to tell us more about today's report is the chairman of the task force, Dr. Olga Jonasson. She is a kidney transplant specialist and chief of surgery at Cook County Hospital in Chicago. Dr. Jonasson, we've just seen that report from Minnesota. You see it. What is wrong with the current organ transplant system? Why do we need to change it? Oh, there are a number of things that are wrong. Uh, among them, of course, and leading the way is the shortage of organ donors. But following closely upon that, of course, is the inability of many patients to pay the high cost for heart and liver transplantation. Uh, we were very gratified, the members of the task force, were to hear uh, Secretary Bowen's recent announcement that Medicare would finally agree to pay for uh, heart transplantation, but only for Medicare beneficiaries. And of course, that's a very limited group of people. And specifically, why are you recommending that, uh, that Medicare and private insurance companies should start to pay for heart and liver transplants? Because these are proven to be effective and uh, life-saving methods of treatment. Uh, as uh, long as three years ago, there was a recommendation from a National Institutes of Health consensus panel to the federal government that liver transplantation was no longer experimental, but was therapeutic. And we recommended at that time that the government pay for liver transplantation for identified conditions that, would, uh, that we knew would benefit from the treatment. I'd like you to ask yourselves, why is Olga Jonasson um, known most for the first of this or the first of that, or uh, for being the champion of uh, women uh, in surgery? Well, she deserves it. But uh, I would submit to you she should be known for having revolutionized the field of uh, uh, transplantation surgery reimbursement. And um, many of you may know that also she uh, was instrumental in revolutionizing the NISQIP program, the field of surgical quality. Um, but for as long, and this is something that Julie Flashlock talks about uh, all the time, and uh, she's one of our role models uh, as well, um, for as long as we have DEI boiled down to the first of this and the first of that and the percent of this and the percent of that, we will not go beyond that stage, and we will have the accomplishments of people from underrepresented minorities in medicine be buried under what they did to push ahead against the frontier of being able to be included and making a difference. Um, and uh, of course, the reference to her as a chairman is, is a subtle thing. You might have not even heard it, but there is systemic gender bias in language. Uh, many uh, of us might think that's inconsequential as a drop of water, but remember that throughout history, even water drops can be used as a torture technique. And in fact, we know well what multiple water drops do. The repeated process causes fear and mental deterioration in the subjects. Um, so um, one of the things I remember seven years ago when I became the chair is every document that I had to sign had the chairman's uh, signature line. And I said I had to change every single document. I still find documents that have a chairman as the signature line. Uh, I guess ready for the next chairman. So um, this is where we're at. This is why we're not making fast enough progress. That's the gap in chairs of departments across all medical schools. This, this is not just surgery. So about 20, 
2% um, chairs of all departments are, are, are women. You see that huge gap between men and women. Uh, the, in surgery, we're even worse. We are at 6%, 6.3% to be, to be exact, um, chairs of surgery. These are the faces of the brave ones that have followed in the footsteps uh, of the great icons and role models like Olga Jonasson, like Julie Fleisch, like, uh, like Barbara Bass, and so on and so on, Diane Farber. Um, and uh, why is that? Ask yourself. Well, it's not because of a lack of pipeline. Look at the lines of U.S. medical school graduates by gender. You know, they've come together. We have a young pipeline. Look at this uh, bubble um, in terms of, you know, the medical students and then the residents. They do fine. There's a great pipeline of medical students and residents. And then as you get higher and higher, there's this attrition that happens. Why is that happening? Um, of course, you know, we have made a great progress, right? And of course, we have Olga Jonasson and all of the great ones that came after Olga Jonasson and all the brave ones that are serving today to help with our progress. But what more can we do? Okay, well, I'll tell you, we're already doing it and women are leading the way. We are taking roles above and beyond the departmental level into the medical schools, the health systems, the conglomerates as deans and CEO. And I see um, many of these faces that I have here are in the audience, and I am so tickled to see them in the audience because they are great role models for all of us. So um, Olga was really known also for being a great mentor. Uh, and I think every woman in surgery, uh, um, to some extent, uh, owes uh, either directly or indirectly, uh, once or twice removed, their progress um, to the revolution that uh, Dr. Jonasson uh, star started um, back in 1966 when I was born. So um, uh, about a decade ago now, uh, a little bit more, we did a paper, in, uh, published a paper in anosal surgery, um, and we said there's individual and institutional things that we need to do. Um, and in fact, a lot of these things got done. You know, we asked for, uh, for, for individuals to structure their, their home life um, to accommodate the professional activities and to serve as role models and speak up and counsel their colleagues and appoint them to committees. And we called uh, for visiting professorships and scholarships and mentor, ment mentoring program, and this happened. Um, we called on institutions to um, realize that those who have familiar responsibilities cannot be tasked with, uh, you know, crazy of hours, uh, um, you know, uh, meetings and, and whatnot, and have to be respected for their family time and their pregnancy time. And many institutions um, have, have done that um, and, uh, you know, have recruited mentors and have appointed DEI experts and women experts and vice chairs and all of that. So we've made progress, but is it enough? I submit to you, in the field of medicine at large and in the field of surgery specifically, not as much as we want to. Actually, pharma is progressing faster. In pharma, I was at an NIH seminar a couple of weeks ago uh, that's quoted there. If you guys want to see it, it's recorded. In pharma, they realize that you get more cures and you get faster drug development if you have gender diversity teams. So they look for that and they put their teams, assemble them that way, okay? Um, and so um, 
a champion. Uh, I'm going to skip this one because I already told you that Olga was a champion for, for surgical quality and surgical outcomes and surgical innovation and transplant uh, immunobiology and transplant reimbursement. And I, there will come a time, I hope, uh, hopefully not a thousand years from now, when Olga will be remembered more for those accomplishments than for being the champion for women in surgery because we would have overcome that problem of needing champions for women in surgery. Um, I want to touch a little bit on the issue of um, why is diversity, equity, inclusion so important? And this is a topic that Melina Kiwi, I don't know if, if she's here in the audience, uh, talked to us at the Grand Rounds when she visited us a couple of weeks ago in Miami. The issue of enrollment into clinical trials. Why is it that although some diseases, like say pancreatic cancer, are disproportionately affecting underrepresented minorities, such as blacks and pancreatic cancer, for example, but yet the clinical trials are not enrolling those uh, constituencies? And now there is an increasing recognition that perhaps the findings of those trials don't apply to the underrepresented minorities, which they uh, systematically fail to, to, to include. The same thing happens in, in peripheral vascular disease and amputations. Amputation rates are four times more common in blacks and Latinx and Hispanics than in other ethnicities. Terrible disease. Why is that? Why is that? And why don't we have four times as higher enrollment of those underrepresented groups in our vascular regeneration trials. Um, can we get our hands around this? I spent my entire career on this. I was, um, you know, uh, I've been spearheading a, a vascular regenerative medicine platform to deal with the problem that has been unsolved about amputations. Um, I was super, super excited. Um, uh, I guess it was on Monday um, that this work was recognized uh, and I was elected onto the National Academy of Medicine for, for my team's work in this, in this arena. Um, and we'll see. What was the fire in me for doing this? It was DEI. So DEI can make us get a fire in our belly, right? Because I saw people from my communities being affected four times higher with amputation rates. And along the way, while I had that fire that needed to be put out in, in my passion of getting a, a new cure, a new platform out there, we got to teach all these young people all this and, and contribute all this to the literature. And you ask yourself, if there's so many women teaching young generations of surgeon scientists, medical scientists, and so many women pushing for new cures, what's happening to NIH funding? Well you'd be dismayed to see this curve. This came out just a, a week ago, I think, a couple of weeks ago. So here is the um, overall distribution of one grant in green at the top, and then two grants in purple, and then multiple grants in the bottom. So you see most people have one grant. It's a little bit of a, a slight decline in the one grant per lab concept. These are R01s, um, you know, and, but, and a slight increase in the two grants, but for the most part, most research programs out there depend on one grant. If you look at the distribution by gender, women uh, and men have been declining in getting that one grant over time. And for the most part, equally so, equally so. Um, um, but look at this, this is the multiple grantee. 
what is wrong with this picture? So the multiple grantee is increasing, has always been higher, and is exponentially increasing in men versus women. So the NIH is recognizing that there's some a systemic issue here. And I give them a lot of credit for this, for publishing this data and for saying we have to look at this. What is happening? Because if we um, uh, have 50-50 representation in medical school class uh, and, and in young science, scientists in training, um, but uh, only men are getting the multiple grants, only men are getting to grow their programs uh, in a hyper-competitive era, that's a problem, okay? Uh, here you go. This is four or more. This is the distribution for men versus women, men at the top there. Four or more grants per research program, the difference between men and women. One could say, well, women don't work hard enough. Okay, that's supposed to be a joke. <laughs> or there's something wrong. Uh, and this is what I told you where the issue uh, of inclusion, okay, inclusion and equity is so important. Because when you look at the diversity profile, there's just as many women doing research as men. So we're very diverse in research. But are we being equitable? And are we being inclusive? Are the ideas that women put forth equally being valued? And so I'd like to take you to this and um, how are we doing on time? 16 minutes, okay, great. I want to rehash this because um, I, I think, uh, I, like I said, this is a, a conversation, a discourse, a dialogue that I want to hopefully propagate from this venue into the various institutions that you all come from. So DEI, imbalances and consequences. This is probably one of the most important slides in my talk. Okay, there are various situations going on in our society, going on in the field of medicine, going on in surgery, the house of surgery. There's situation number one where equity and inclusion exist, but there's no diversity. That is thankfully decreasing, okay? Thankfully, that situation is decreasing. This is not my name. I apologize to all the white men in the audience, but this is the hashtag so many white guys. That's what they call this, this situation number one no diversity. And what happens is that there's a loss in the competitive edge of, of the institution. There's a lack of uh, innovation. There's a, a, a slow, um, uh, things are very slow to change. The employees leave, there's disengagement. And this is where the, you know, this is the typical in the corporate world, they look at, they talk about this in terms of the $1 billion idea that left the door from your company because you had hashtag so many white guys. Okay, um, in medicine, in surgery, thank God this is changing. There's um, more and more diversity. And thank God we, the House of Surgery, are so proud of spearheading that movement. Situation number two, there's inclusion and there's diversity, but there's no equity. My goodness gracious, do we have that situation in all of our medical fields across the board. This is the hashtag power struggle. This is the identity clashes. This is the destructive politics. This is the loss of productivity in destructive politics. This is the HR wars, and this is ultimately in society what is considered to be the main reason for uh, real wars is the power struggle. That's when there's no equity. 
And I told you before, equity was about power. Equity is about having a say in who gets promoted, who gets the opportunity, who gets the increase in compensation, who gets the access to care. That is equity. Uh, and no equity, things are not good. And uh, let me ask ourselves, in this society, do we have equity? In this uh, medicine at, at large, do we have equity? In surgery, do we have equity? Well, you only have to look at the men versus women pay gap, and you'll have your answer. Situation number three, you have equity and you have diversity, but you have no inclusion. Now, we need to realize that inclusion is a subjective thing. It is a feeling based on the individual, sorry for the misspelling, individual experience and not being inclusive around that boardroom, around that representation that you all fought so hard to be around the table and get there, I made it, I'm there. But not being inclusive once you're there, it could be subtle, could be dismissive, could be marginalizing, could be basically ignoring the individual talent and, and the individual experience and the individual perspective. And um, around the boardroom, if we become the only talking you are I am, for the longest time I was the only woman in the tenure professor APT committee. <laughs> Thank God that has changed. But if, if one becomes the only token person, well, that diversity doesn't help a lot uh, unless they decide to be inclusive and unless they purposely, that panel decides to listen to that one woman leader because she comes from a different perspective and her perspective uh, matters. Um, so in short, none of these scenarios are good, um, but in our field, we need to keep them in mind. So what can leaders and organizations do? Well, for one, the leadership needs to really embody a mindset of the DEI principles and understand the lexicon, okay? There has to be not only an intention to embrace it, and to have programs around it, but there has to be a deep understanding of it, okay? Um, we have to add diversity of gender. Uh, we have to add this concept of non-conforming, trans, third gender, um, identifying in people. I think that is where we are most behind, uh, personally, that's my opinion, in our field. We have to um, continue to have efforts towards building trust. Trust is earned, They're not, it's not given. And so if we don't earn it, talent will leave our field. Um, we have to be open and intentional with our DEI initiatives and introspect, measure, monitor, report progress, understand the equity piece, measure the baseline and make progress. So um, basically the, the take home message uh, to leaders that want to uh, uh, embrace uh, DEI is that um, you have to hit that sweet spot of the confluency, the intercept between diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, which is where belonging exists. And belonging is really an outcome of holding space where everyone feels empowered to speak up, where everyone feels that they can make a difference, that they can change the system for the better uh, and shift the culture for the better. Uh, and guess what? It's not my responsibility, your responsibility, the individual's responsibility is the responsibility of those in leadership. And more often than not, those in leadership are in the dominant social culture. So that is why until this room is standing 
space only and spilling at the door, we may still grow at a snake's uh, or total space and not get there in a thousand years. So I'm going to skip this. Uh, I'm going to tell you that over the years without mentors and role models and sponsors and people that we look up to, uh, it would be impossible to even be here. Though, you know, I've told you that perhaps we're moving a little bit too slow. And uh, those are some of uh, the individuals that have really made a huge difference in my career. Some very directly and some very um, indirectly um, through friends, through colleagues, uh, through listening to them at lectures and whatnot. Um, and, uh, you know, Olga, Olga was known um, to uh, serve as that. And I think that is one of her most amazing legacies, the worthy women legacy. And uh, I think I have time to share this, uh, this uh, clip from Dr. Newman talking about the worthy woman legacy. She actually started meeting with Katherine Anderson and myself at the American Surgical Association meetings to, um, to look at what she called worthy women, to see if these women should be nominated for the American Surgical Association and be members. I pointed out to her that I wasn't a member either. She said, well, that was unacceptable. And uh, she got uh, support for me to become a member of the organization. At the college, um, she always was considerate of appointing women to positions of speaking on women's issues and involving herself in the activities. But she was great to really all young people. Olga invited uh, young people from the community to come to the clinical congress meetings so that they could see what surgery and medicine was all about and it's inspired these bright young people who may have very few role models uh, to, to really look to achieve something a little bit more than they may know. So I told you I would start and end uh, with, with a reflection, um, but disclaimer, there's a couple more slides. Um, so this is sort of the closing reflection and, um, and uh, I would like us all to hopefully go back uh, and take from this lecture that we want to embrace uh, diversity to the power of thought, D-E-I, diversity, equity, in, uh, and inclusion. So be willing to change the world towards the better through diverse ideas, experiences, and perspectives, no matter how hard, no matter how seemingly impossible. There is a higher power cheering you on towards a new level of excellence that will naturally follow a DEI-inspired second renaissance. Um, a couple of more slides. So a shout out to my family. My husband, Dr. Rami Lokui, is, is here. We really take this, um, this D to the T uh, seriously. We bring it home. Uh, uh, for one, uh, my husband is an anesthesiologist. <laughs> Um, this is uh, our, our son here. Um, this is when I, I got inducted to the American College of Surgeons, uh, and he's now 28. Uh, and um, he loves um, uh, technology and uh, uh, computer sciences. Um, and uh, this is our, our daughter, uh, who I mentioned to you is now 16. Um, and she loves music and medicine and uh, math uh, and science. Um, and so we couldn't all be uh, more different at home, and there's some heated exchanges, uh, but it's all good. 
It's all good. It's D to the T. Uh, I'd like to close uh, by letting Olga tell us how wonderful it is, despite all the challenges, despite all the struggles, uh, to be part of this uh, amazing field and to be now when the House of Surgery is taking issues of DEI seriously and spearheading them. It feels very hard looking back on it. I think I would have enjoyed perhaps smelling roses a little bit more along the way. I worked and have worked real hard all my life and many, many hours in the week. Some years ago, I often wondered if I knew what I knew today, if I would have gone through a surgical residency. Uh, obviously, the answer is yes. Being a surgeon is a wonderful profession and I love it and it's really challenging and it's fun to be successful and to have accomplished a great deal. Thank you so much for your attendance. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.